closer to you. Starting to get nervous. All this yeah. equipment, at least with the film thing, the microphone is hidden under my shirt. <laughs> Can sometimes forget it's there. Nah, you'll probably forget But then that's... you have a camera and you're... Well, yeah, and then there's that. In the summer of 2023, a group of storytellers, community organizers, and strategists descended on 10 farms and ranches in Canada. Don't worry, we, we let them know we were coming before we showed up. Now, these farms and ranches represented a cross-section of Canadian agriculture, so fruit producers, grains, beef to veggies. We even squeezed in a vineyard. Just going to do like a sound check, just to make sure that this is the first time I've worked with that one, so I just want to make sure it's catching it. Yep. Uh, just tell me what you had for breakfast. Uh, I had nothing for breakfast. So these farms and ranches had been hand-picked to be featured in a multimedia project that included videos, articles, and a podcast series. The reason we selected these farmers and ranchers to be front and center in this project actually had very little to do with what they produced. It was how they chose to produce food, fiber, fuels, or medicine that got us all excited. I went, if you had a chance for breakfast, I had, a, I had half a glass of water. I usually would grab an apple as I'm running out the door. Yeah. I never did that this morning. I forgot. All right. I guess she's going. Because it didn't go out the door yet. Well, actually, I did. <laughs> I uh, moved one group of cows and went and got the fishing rod. At one point and... during their careers, these agriculture producers had decided that not only were they going to produce the best tasting food and pack it full of nutrients, but they're going to use their farming and ranching practices to build community connections, take care of the land, contribute to ecosystem stewardship, and even help address a massive global threat like climate change. But when I sell beef to a customer and they're they're over the moon happy with the quality of the product but more so with what we're doing it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it and it's like yeah this is all totally worth it rural roots to climate solutions in partnership with regeneration canada presents Stories of Regeneration, a podcast series exploring why we, as a society, need to get behind a system of agriculture that is determined not only to leave the land and ecosystems better off than when we found them, but also keep farmers and ranchers farming and ranching. An agriculture system called regenerative agriculture. I'm your host, Derek Leahy. One, total grazing with Ryan Boyd of South Glanton Farms in Forest, Manitoba, August 20th, 2023. Just say what your full name is, where you live, and what you do. I'm Ryan Boyd. I live uh, just north of Brandon near Forest, Manitoba. Uh, I farm here with my family. We raise beef cattle and grain crops. I was born and raised in agriculture, born on the farm here. We live where we're, where our house is. I'm just half a mile from the house I grew up in, the, the family farm, um, grew up farming at my grandpa's side and my dad's side. And it was just something that uh, I I think I always knew I was going to farm. Wasn't sure what that might look like. Um, signed up for university. It was late August. We were in, I was at, I leave the combine to sign up for university one. And I was kind of tossing the idea between engineering or 
agriculture and crop must have been good enough that day because I signed up for the intro to ag and yeah, the rest is history. Uh, and then obviously like the downside of a podcast is people can't really see where we are. So I was wondering if you could paint a bit of a picture of the, the land we're on right now. Sure. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of on, um, at the edge of the prairie pothole, pothole region. So north of us here, like Ducks Unlimited loves the country a mile or two north of us because it's so many depressions full of water. The, the, the potholes are abundant. You move south of us, it's fairly flat. There is a bit of a roll to the land, so the water does drain. Um, like we're only 10 miles north of the Cinnaboyne River, so there's significant creeks and whatnot that do run through. It's a decent soil. It's Newdale clay loam. Um, it's fairly fertile. Uh, predominantly grain farming country. It, it, traditionally mixed farms, but now mostly, you know, it's canola, wheat, a bit of soybeans. That's the bulk of the production in our area. Like, I don't know how long the farm's been around for, but sort of like, what's the farm's origin story? How did it all get started here? My grandpa bought his for his farm. He farmed a half section and he bought that from like an insurance company that somebody, so the land had been broke previously. He bought it in about late 1940s, 46, 47. Um, and it had, the land had just been gone back to whatever grew because yeah. some, whoever was farming it before couldn't make a go of it. He, he bought that land, started farming and then dad expanded the farm significantly in the nineties, taking over from people that were retiring or, or looking for other options. And then, uh, yeah, I came along and I haven't, we haven't expanded a ton of acres over the last 15, 20 years since I've kind of been here, but we've really morphed it into a more cattle grazing perennial based production system merged with the annual crops. Okay. Yeah. That was like the next question I wanted to ask is like what you got going on here. So it's a good segue. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we have going on here? Um, some days it's kind of chaotic, but we're what we're trying to do is I really fell in love with holistic management and, and in management intensive grazing. Okay. And so we've been trying to build a grazing system that uh, kind of mimics nature in that we're calving cows in, in June on green grass, on pasture, keeping them out on the land as much as possible throughout the year. And then we have our annual crop system that we rotate some of our our pasture, our perennial forage with the cropland and try to capitalize on some of those synergies back and forth between the, the cattle and the crops. My my true passion is the grazing and the and the cattle. So the, the that that is kind of where more of my attention goes towards and that's where I think we're making the most progress in terms of regenerative agriculture. Um but yeah, that's kind of a Coles note to that. I guess in terms of marketing, we we are slowly trying to develop the the direct marketing of the grass-finished beef, but it's it's a work in progress. How do you feel about direct marketing? I feel like it's a lot of work. It's a future that I think if we're going to really be able to, to make what we're doing function as well as it could economically, it's something we need to work towards. And, and that's where I... Yeah, currently it's not a huge economic driver on the farm, but it's something that we're trying to invest a bit of time and energy in to build that to to make the future a little more sustainable and more regenerative. Yeah, I guess uh, when you did your degree, they didn't really teach you much about marketing. <laughs> no, uh, marketing would have been a probably a, a much better option for uh, 
looking back, but uh, yeah, so it's a it's a steep learning curve there on the direct marketing front for sure. And uh, the the types of crops you like, obviously you guys have forage, but like what are like the annuals that you guys grow? Yep, for sure. So the annual crops that we're growing, we grow like the standard wheat, canola. We're growing soybeans, corn, peas, oats. We do grow a little bit of barley. What else? We've grown. We've grown lots of different crops and winter wheat. I guess we really like the winter cereals, planting those in the fall. Uh, sometimes we struggle with the cover crops getting significant growth, but I figure like the easiest option for cover crop here is like a winter cereal over winters goes in the spring. So fall rye and winter wheat, we, we like that. One of our most, the, the winter wheat and vetch, we grow hairy vetch with winter wheat. Um, the winter, the hairy vetch for for seed production, um, because a lot of people like to grow that in their cover crop mixes, uh, ourselves included. It makes excellent cattle feed, fixes nitrogen. So, and, and the, you sell the seed by the pound, not the bushel. So it's there's much more an economic incentive to do that, and that's a that's a like the intercropping to me is a is a easy intro to regen egg on the on the annual crop side so we're trying to do as much of that winter wheat vetch that as we can and, okay. and developing the more market for the vetch one quick follow-up question on the cows so you had about it was like three four hundred yeah sorry so we oh, no, we run uh there's this year we calved uh, about just shy of 400 cows so those cows those they, their calves are all on the farm and then we we carry those calves over because they're calving in June. Uh, we background them throughout the winter and then grass them again in the in the the next summer as a yearling. There's roughly 400 cows, but that really goes up and down a lot too. Like in two years ago, when it was really a drought, feed supplies were short, numbers were going down. But typically, we're moving up and down and and trying to work with the cattle cycle a little bit as well. If the prices are lower, we're trying to build numbers to hopefully capitalize on a on an upswing in the cattle cycle and vice versa so oh, smart okay and then um so the ones that you direct market those are all grass finished yeah so we grass finished the direct marketing uh bit like like in in full disclosure like we do not direct market everything we sell that that is like a very large long-term goal to do that so we're maybe direct marketing 10 15 percent at this time and so those are all grass finished. We're butchering seasonally. Most of the animals we are butchering, they're a two-year-old heifer. That the, the heifers breed as yearlings. What what doesn't become pregnant, we we keep over and then grass them for a second summer, and they become fat on on the grass as a second as a as a two-year-old. And then that's what we're harvesting for our, our grass-fed beef. Like, I hate asking people this question because it's kind of been a crap year for everybody, but what have been some <laughs> of the challenges of the growing season this year? We usually plan to be out grazing on the pasture, uh, stockpiled forage, by at least the 1st of April. Well, I have a picture, like the 1st of April, put the cows where they're supposed to be grazing, and there was literally like two feet of snow on the pasture. It just oh, no. It didn't warm up very quick, so it was a late spring on that front. And then uh, when it finally did warm up, like June was almost record temperatures as far as heat goes. Mm. So when it started, everything grew nicely. And we did have the snow cover for moisture, so that was good. And we're sitting here below average moisture for the season, which is still we've had seven inches of rain, and it's been very timely. So I'm 
actually, I'm not complaining about our season thus far. It's it hasn't been that bad because so we just took a drive out to out near Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, to visit some family on a camping trip, and I I really wouldn't trade a, what we have in this local area and are on our farm for anywhere that I saw between here and there. I wish I could say that all the farmers and ranchers we interviewed for Stories of Regeneration had a similar experience to Ryan's when it came to the challenges of this past growing season. The spring and summer of 2023 in Canada will likely forever be remembered as the time we got hit by wildfires, droughts, torrential rains, and floods practically all at the same time. Sadly, Ryan's place was the first farm we came across during our tour of Canada that hadn't or wasn't having a rough time with the weather. Before Ryan's place, we'd already recorded in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Saskatchewan. Ryan just used a bunch of terminology like cover cropping, intercropping, holistic management that might be unfamiliar territory for some of you listening right now, especially those new listeners who have just joined us with the Stories of Regeneration series. A lot of the terms in this episode are, well, exactly what they sound like. So cover cropping is planting a crop with the main, but not the only purpose, but with the main purpose to cover cultivated land. Intercropping is planting two or more crops in the same field. Holistic management is one of the precursors to regenerative agriculture. It's an agriculture system that factors in economics, the environment, and some social aspects when making decisions on a farm or ranch. Now, why am I telling you all this? All three of them are tools that can be used in regenerative agriculture, depending on the context of a farm or ranch. That's the beauty of regenerative agriculture. You're only supposed to use the tools and practices that make sense for your agricultural operation. For example, if you got a ranch that's, let's say it's like 99% native prairie, it doesn't make a lot of sense to rip all that out to start intercropping or cover cropping because these are regenerative agriculture practices. That would be more like a degenerative system as opposed to a regenerative system. We cover, pun intended, cover cropping in episode 51 with Kevin Elmy, and we interpret, poorly executed pun intended, intercropping in episode 34 with Eric Bremer. Up next, Ryan tells us how and when his farm's regenerative agriculture journey began. So I came home from university, like I ate up everything they were laying down at, at university in terms of like soil fertility, like the I could look at the soil test and, and say, okay, we need this much nitrogen and this much phosphorus and potash and, and so on. And like, was really intrigued, like, okay, which herbicides are what? And we got to like, had that all figured out. And like, so we were, you're very, a conventional grain farm. And that's where the opportunity seemed like at that time was expanding acres of grain production. So that's, that's really what dad's trajectory was expanding the grain operation. The cattle were still there, but the cattle at that time were on the periphery of the, like, just in the field margins where it wasn't feasible to farm. I came home from university. We were, we had, a, like, a beautiful crop coming the one summer. Extreme weather that, like, large storm comes through. It was pretty hard on the hard on the crops. Market was very depressed at that time, like the commodity market. It wasn't like it was today where we, we sold wheat that fall. I think it was, like, less than $5 a bushel, $4 a bushel for wheat. And canola, we sold $6 canola that year. And the plan was to, oh, we're just going to buy the canola back on the futures and its price will go up, it'll be all good. Well, the price went up, but and I, I didn't have the nerve to buy back in. Long story short, we had a tough financial year. And, and 
I was fortunate that at a young age, my dad kind of threw the reins to the farm to me. Like, use what you learned at university. Like, have at it. I'm tired. I'm I'm mm. willing, more than willing to let you go. And so he, at the same time, he had made me or, or sold me some land, and and we'd become full partners. Like, we had a fifty-fifty partnership in the farm operation, which is at eighteen or twenty years old. That's that happened. So I was pretty fortunate on that front that I it wasn't your typical farm succession story where the old man hangs on till he's his he's on his deathbed and the 60 or 70 year old son doesn't know the financials of the operation until the the grandparent dies basically i've been right involved on that from day one so had a bad year i was like well i can't have two bad years in a row like what it could take me 10 years in town digging myself out of this out of a hole that could potentially be dug with two bad years in a row on the farm and i'll never forget the day dad we were, we were hauling cattle home from pasture and i said like we can't can't do this like we got to do something different he's like no it'll it'll be better next year this is farming it's cyclical and i was like no way we got to do something different so i just went on a mission that that winter trying to figure out like what are we going to do and the seeds had already been planted at university, like for management intensive grazing. And I remember I wrote a paper on grass fed beef for Martin Entz in one of his courses and like took an organic cropping system course there too, again with Martin Entz. So that's in the back of my mind. And, I, and I'm thinking like, we have to do something more lower risk because basically all we were doing, we were working our butts off, wearing new machinery out, making payments on that. And that's all we were doing was making payments. And in hindsight, that that maybe is just farming in a snapshot you you make your payments and carry on but anyways i thought we should do something different got in with the holistic management crowd and and i really enjoyed the the rotational grazing the management intensive grazing read all the allen nation stockman grass farmer just ate that up next year sold half the farm down like half of our annual crop acres to perennial forage underseeded it Mm -hmm. with the cash crop and and then the other side of this story is that we were just in the post BSE years. Like this was around like the mid two thousands, late two thousands. So cows weren't really worth anything at that time. Like so I thought, okay, I have my young ambition, young energy. Cattle prices have never been worse and there it, it just didn't seem like they could get get any worse. They had to start getting better. I could build a I'm not a machinery guy, I don't like I don't like spending money on machinery and that just wasn't my thing. So to build a cattle operation the way we have it, where the cattle are out on the land all year, calving on grass, we don't need any facilities really. Like mm. you, you need a quad, some t- uh, high tensile wire perimeter fence and then some temporary wire and figure out a way to get the water out of the slough or the dugout into a trough and you're in business. So that's what we did. We started the next year when those fields that we'd seeded down to grass harvested a crop that that fall the next year the alfalfas and the grasses and everything we planted started growing and we actually we had a phenomenal catch of of pasture started grazing so we started buying cull cows we were we started custom grazing custom grazing a whole bunch of yearlings because that was a completely foreign concept to me i'd never never had anything to do with a yearling never mind use managing them on grass so we started doing that but then at the same time my my plan was to seed the entire farm to to grass and just be done with it like have an auction sale sell all the machinery but then in 2008 i don't know if you 
remember i'm not sure how old you are that the markets just went bonkers like the crop prices just went crazy and that was around the same time like oil was going crazy we were at peak oil we were gonna run out of oil right away and farming all of a sudden within like 12 months went from being like everybody wanting out to like there's money again it was like we've we've arrived on the grain scene and so i quickly realized that i wasn't gonna make a lot of money cattle farming it was going to take a while to get this figured out so the other half of the farm stayed in crop production but then i found myself down at gabe brown's place and saw what he was doing with cover crops and integrating the the cattle and the and the cropping I'm like okay well let, we could make this work there so then we went down to we started we got a no-till disc drill we got a stripper header started planting season-long cover crops and and just basically doing like the textbook regen egg stuff as trying as much intercropping and just everything we were doing it and it was a lot of fun and like the fun came back to farming like it was it was good so we've been at that for 10 years now doing the cover crops doing the season-long cocktail mixes grazing them doing our rotational grazing thing uh, moving cattle every day if not you know, it was usually once a day. That's about as much as we did. And then cattle prices have—they we had a few good years there. Uh, whatever year that was, 2015 maybe. I can't remember the exact year. They had a year or two that was good there. We sold some cows, made some money, and then quickly it went back to the. It was tight again. And then, but in the meantime, grain farming was pretty consistent. Like there was there was money in it, so we were never quite able to get off the grain train because we needed it for the financial aspect and then i was starting to get frustrated because I, I just kept thinking like okay we've been doing these cover crops we've been doing the cattle have been on the cropland and like weeds were a major issue like i'd plant the season-long cover crop cocktail 60 percent of the field would be amazing the other half or third of it would be overtaken by weeds and then i found like the, the next year i was fighting I was using, still having to use a ton of herbicides, more herbicides than I wanted to use. And it was like, I'd take a step forward and, you know, it was slow, slow progress. It was frustrating at times. And then, so I was starting to burn out too. And it was like, okay, something's got to give here. Like we, I feel very frustrated. Like I, I was starting to have environmental guilt like crazy over all these pesticides and glyphosate that we use in our no-till system. It was like, okay, I got to figure the cattle thing out. We're going all in on that. So we started, we seeded another round of annual crop down to, to pasture. And then the opportunity for the Nuffield scholarship came up. And it, it was like, uh, I have to give a shout out to, to Blake Vince and a couple of the other past scholars locally that kind of gave me the poke, like, hey, you should think about this. And I really needed a break from the farm. I was, like I say, I was starting to burn out. I was looking for answers. And I, and so the Nuffield opportunity came up to travel the world, visit with some more experienced grazers, some people that have been doing, making this work uh, at scale with the cattle and on better quality land that, that typically was grain farms. So away I went, I spent a better part of four months over two years traveling the world talking with different farmers just thinking and reflecting on what we were doing at home came home and had some new ideas and just totally reinvigorated what we were doing on the farm and that's where we've ended up i'm still never been more convinced that 
the intent of grazing is what we want to be doing here. That is our, our niche. That's our future. Ryan just mentioned a few rock stars right there in the, what I'm going to call the taking care of the land through agriculture practices movement. Alanation. Alanation wrote several books on pasture management with livestock and was the editor of the Stockman Grass Farmer for a good 40 years. Martin Entz is a professor of cropping systems and natural systems agriculture at the University of Manitoba. And Gabe Brown, who doesn't know Gabe Brown? Gabe Brown is a very well-known regenerative agriculture producer from North Dakota. If you've seen the documentary Kiss the Ground, or if you've seen the sequel Common Ground, uh, which just came out in the fall of 2023, I believe. If you've seen either one of these documentaries, you know who Gabe Brown is. And last but not least, Blake Vince. Blake Vince is actually a producer we're going to hear from a little bit later on in the series. He's a grain farmer near Chatham, Ontario. Ryan mentioned his Nuffield scholarship was fairly integral in his regenerative journey. Nuffield Canada provides Canadians who have a strong passion for agriculture with scholarships to travel the world and study different types of agriculture in different places. I've met a few Nuffield scholars in my travels and all of them had good things to say about the program. Now, one big reason we traveled out to Forest, Manitoba to sit down and have a chat with Ryan was to learn about a type of grazing system that actually just boggled my mind when I first heard about it. It was something called total grazing. And so we talked a little bit about this idea of total grazing, and that's what one of the things I came across or discovered on the Nuffield journey was uh, I met with this guy by the name of Jaime Elizondo down in Florida. He's kind of like a consultant, but he's also a rancher from Mexico. And we started to follow what he was teaching in that uh, ultra high stock density grazing. So we, we went to moving like up to four times per day. His whole idea behind the total grazing is a kind of a real paradigm shift. And this is something like if you... If you take anything from this conversation, it's like this this new paradigm in grazing that that is photosynthetic based uh, recovery, plant regrowth or recovery, we'll call it post grazing versus root based, root reserve based recovery. So the traditional mindset in grazing is you should never take more than a third of the of the leaf area off the plant because when you take more than a third of that. The, the, the roots shut down and don't they stop growing and it takes several days or or weeks even to to start growing again so that would be a big no-no you don't want to do that so you graze less than a third off the top and it, it the plant just keeps growing and growing stays green but what Jaime is saying and he learned from Johann Zietzman is that no we need to have an extremely long recovery period let those forage plants go through their life cycle and really fill their root reserves with with all the the energy that they need to regrow and then when we come in and graze we graze super at a super high density so we're getting that animal impact the hoof impact the cattle are grazing non-selectively grazing everything quite evenly and and instead of worrying about just like taking a third of the plant take take like have a high utilization like in cases up to utilize 80 percent of that as available feed and then what they don't eat they're trampling and turning that into the litter and then follow that with an extremely long recovery period so like we're talking up to a year 
in cases even longer, depending on uh, the brittleness or how dry or how much moisture you get, and, and also ultimately what you're trying to achieve. Total grazing boggled my mind for two reasons. One, uh, during my university years, and this is like 20 years ago, but during my university years, I studied mainly European history. And on top of that, I was a tour guide in Germany for most of my 20s. When I heard we're going to interview an agriculture producer about something called total grazing, the historian part of my brain kind of went straight to the concept of total war, uh, which is a type of warfare that involves everything and everyone, doesn't matter if they're a civilian or a soldier. Now, this is a podcast series meant to talk about things that are regenerative. In general, the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast likes to keep things pretty positive. So you can imagine what my initial, albeit irrational, reaction was to total grazing when I first heard about it. Those uh, thoughts quickly passed, though. The other reason I found it challenging to get my head around total grazing is up until I met Ryan, I was one of those people who believed good grazing management was take off 30%, trample 30%, leave 30%. Grass sequesters carbon through photosynthesis. Grass blades are like solar panels, so the bigger the panel, the more carbon you're going to store. I had only heard of people grazing off 80%, for example, in times of drought. And the idea there was slow down the herd, give other pastures a chance to grow. Ryan took a bunch of us on a farm tour just before we sat down for just a really great farm to table dinner in the evening. And I remember looking at one of his paddocks and thinking to myself, this looks overgrazed to me. And yet, humility as listeners will learn through this series, is a big part of regenerative agriculture. I could not and do not deny that Ryan has something there with his longer rest periods for his pastures that total grazing allows. Grasses are meant to be grazed, but like anything, they need a recovery period during the growing season. In episode 40 of our podcast, Mark Boyce and Tim Dubat of the University of Alberta talk about how extending that recovery period So keeping livestock off a previously grazed piece of land for as long as possible, this can really help improve water infiltration in pastures, which is obviously a good thing in times of drought and in times of torrential rain. Jaime, or Jim Elizondo, is the grazing consultant from Texas that Ryan mentioned. He runs a training program for agriculture producers on total grazing. Just do an internet search for his name or real wealth ranching to find more details. So we started doing that here and just the results were very convincing. We also, it was also very humbling because when you're grazing that tight, there's not a lot of room for air. So your animal performance can really be dramatically affected in a, in not a good way. So if you don't, you got to really be paying attention, keeping the cattle full and uh, to make that all work. Is there a difference between mob grazing and total grazing, would you say? Yeah, I don't know. I w- well, there is difference. So, so total grazing is this term that, that, that Jaime has coined, yeah. and that's basically describing the whole system. Okay. So he's talking about, like, ultra-high stock density, high-utilization grazing. Okay. And when I say ultra-high stock density, I'm talking about, like, say, more than 500 pounds of beef of live weight per acre during the act of grazing. Because when you get the density up that high, the animals behave differently. It's just it's a completely different thing that goes on. And then he's, it's also referring to the like having adapted genetics, having animals that are you know a smaller frame, easier fleshing, high capacity, and just better able to 
excel in this in this scenario and then it's also talking about effective or strategic supplementation because obviously our our land that has early on in its regenerative or regeneration let's say is not as productive it's not as quality the high quality of feed as we need and at certain times of the year things dry out and the you know we might get low protein so we need to he suggests that we need to be stepping in at, at appropriate times with protein supplementation on on the pasture to to really maximize the utility of the grass and and maintain a moderate like a acceptable level of performance as we transition and improve the land and to, to as things are kind of getting up and running the, the, the supplementation will it's not a forever thing it's uh something that hopefully we'll do less and less of over time as things improve so there's kind of those three angles the high density grazing the genetics and the supplementation so the difference between mob grazing and total grazing mob grazing is just simply the act of having livestock in a tight bunch in a at a high density may or may not mean high utilization and it may or may not mean uh you know all of those other things are happening at the same time and the the supplementation that's uh like it's feeding like alfalfa bales and stuff like that. yeah so in our case like it could be whatever's regionally available and cost effective so um, in our case, we've we've found that the alfalfa, like a high quality alfalfa, is typically the best option. Mm. So we'll go out and in the fall time when those pastures are starting to the protein is dropping, and early on in the spring, when we're we're out on stockpiled forage that is it's not that lush green grass, we'll we'll go and give a, a set amount of like alfalfa so that each animal has adequate to to balance their needs. And then when you're setting up your paddock for the day, like, how do you know when you're looking at it? Like, okay, this amount's enough for one day. Like, it's always sort of... Oh, it's... It would be nuts, like, yeah. you know, guys, like, you could do it. Because, I, 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 like, I learned, like, the land EKG technique yep. where you, like, cut it, weigh it, and then then multiply and do all this math that I can barely do. But yeah, yeah. I feel like a guy like you, you just look at it and you... I don't know. How, that, I don't know. How do you do that? How do you do it? Well... It's like they, I would call it like the grazer's eye. It's experience. It's trial and error. So like it's been 20 years of doing it saying like, I, okay, there's a, there's a hundred cows in this group. The forage here, I can tell by looking at it and estimate how many animal units per acre that of production that is. And then decide like, okay, is this a piece of land that I want to use? Like I want extremely high utilization or is it a piece of land that it needs more work? So we want more litter. So we're using less. So on, on a new paddock, what we'll do is I'll probably give them more than I think they need. And then when we come back to make the next move, whether that, like, so today, if we're going to make four moves today, I would give them a little bit more than I think they need for a quarter of the day. And then when I come back, gauge how much they've ate. Okay, where is it in the, have they ate more than I would like to see the meat? Are there, is their gut fill still satisfactory or are they, or are they hungry? and then adjust the next move accordingly. And usually like the paddocks are uniform enough that once after a day or two of that, it's dialed in to the point where I can say, yeah, they need two acres a day. So if we're moving four times a day, they get a half acre four times. Or if we're just moving once a day, I just give them the two acres. And then we have all the farm fenced in a, in a manner that it's quite, we're trying to simplify that procedure so that I can say to, if I've got a hired help, somebody else is doing it other than me once i've got got it figured okay they need about that two acres 
our paddocks are spaced out so there's around the perimeter there's two strand high tensile electric Mm -hmm. and then interior fences are single strand high tensile that are spaced out about 100 meters wide and each fence post on that single strand cross fence is spaced out so that one post width like from one post to the other and then the 100 meters wide is a half an acre Mm -hmm. so i can say to uh Cade, the young fellow that's working for us, I say, okay, those cows need four posts today, and we're going to move them twice. So you give them, go and set up, give them two posts when you're there, set the other wire up, two posts down, and then set the third fence up, another two posts down, and at some point later in the day, we'll roll the second fence up. They've got their two acres. It, But it's an art. It's something that it could go very wrong if you weren't paying close enough attention so we're looking at the manure we're looking at the grass we're looking at the manure we're looking at the cattle how content they are how happy they are how they're like we're looking at that left side how much what's their gut fill the rumen fill like you ideally by the end of the day they want to be just completely stuffed so as they're during as the day progresses like if we're trying to move them four times a day we want them to go in and graze eat everything down and then relax for a little bit ruminate and then when it's time for the next move, I wouldn't say they're hungry, but they're interested in moving again. So what that does is it keeps them out on the pasture all day instead of just going and hanging out in the shade in the bush somewhere or at the water trough. Ideally, when we when they come back to move them for the next move of the day, or, or in cases we, we haven't got them going this year, but we'll use like an electronic fence lifter. Heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... When when the fence lifter is going to go up or when we're going to roll the reel up, they need to be there, not going crazy running around like they're looking for feed, but ready to walk into the next piece of grass we're giving them mm-hmm. and calmly eat, start eating, and, and do the same thing all over again. And, and that makes it just cover a uniform covering of manure across the whole paddock if you get this right. And then after the last move of the day, like if I go out at just at dusk, those cows should be just jam-packed and right full and ready to lay down and, and ruminate all night. And then the same thing in the morning when I get out there first at the, at the crack of dawn or whatever to do the first move, they should be just starting to get up and they're, they're ready for their next move. I, on my Nuffield travels, they, I didn't get to South or I got to South America to Brazil, but I didn't get to Argentina, but I, I, was connected with this fellow by the name of uh, Pablo Atchaberry, who's invented this uh, automatic wire lifter. We use poly wire to to strip graze down these paddocks. So what instead of rolling it up manually, the, the this lifter thing, you put it in the middle of the paddock, uh, like string the high tensile across between the hundred meters wide, put the lifter in the middle, and then you can program the time you want it to go up. And all the cattle are trained to walk under the fence. That's how we move from one paddock to another. So that thing, if you go out in the morning, we'd set up, uh, we'd give the cows a break, run three more wires, if we're doing a four-day move, run three more wires, and under the next three cross fences, a temporary cross fence, we'd set one of these electronic lifters up, set the time, so we'd probably be out there at 8 to do the first move manually, then set the timers for 10, 2, and say 6 or something like that. And then at that specific time, the wire goes up, cows see it, they let they just walk under, do their thing, grazing. A couple hours later, the next one goes up, they do it again. It really reduces the labor, like, because you'd think, like, how are you going to get out back and forth? You'd be just driving the quad back and forth to pasture all day if you're going to move them 
several times a day. It's not really practical in our case. But these, so these lifters do come in very handy. But we've found like they work quite well this time of the year. But as the days get shorter and especially colder, the batteries were giving us a bit of grief. And certainly when it's like 20 below or like in the really late fall, we were struggling to keep them working just the cold weather and the, the plastic didn't like cold. But they've made lots of improvements to them and they, they're an interesting thing for sure. Because the profit margins are so thin for agriculture producers, you could argue spending a lot of time with your cows doesn't make a lot of financial sense. The price of beef is not based on how many hours a rancher spends being the caretaker of that beef before it becomes beef. If you own the ranch or if you own the herd, you're not getting paid by the hour. Plus, as long as cows have grass and water, they're pretty low maintenance compared to other types of livestock like pigs and chickens that require being fed and watered daily. Cows just kind of help themselves to the grassland buffet. But because we're talking about a regenerative agriculture system here, a system that wants to regenerate the land and ecosystems, you got to pay attention to what you're doing if you're going to achieve your environmental outcomes. You could, in theory, go a week without checking on your cows much, but they're likely going to eat all the plants they find delicious and leave the ones that they're not a fan of. Kind of like a kid or even an adult who chooses to eat ice cream over kale any day of the week. But Ryan is out there every day, sometimes multiple times a day, making sure the cows are grazing the pasture evenly and in turn, the cows get a diverse diet and his pastures can remain diverse because no one plant has the advantage of not being grazed or trampled. The playing field has been leveled, literally. There is a principle of animal welfare that goes along with farming or ranching regeneratively. Whether or not you agree or disagree with eating animals, we can all probably agree those animals should be given the best lives possible. As you heard, Ryan is carefully watching to make sure his cows aren't stressed and that they're pleasantly full from grazing on that diverse buffet his pastures provide. Multiple moves a day is pretty time consuming. And time is a resource that agricultural producers don't have a lot of. Fortunately, Ryan's found a neat little hack with that electronic fence lifter. So total grazing can help Ryan hit those environmental outcomes that are unique to the context of Ryan's farm. But there are also additional benefits for his farm. For me, the biggest benefit is the fact that, you know, we're in a moisture limited environment. And I think that's when we made the shift to like a root-based recovery versus uh, the photosynthetic base. Like we usually hit a wall sometime late July, August for sure. We run out of moisture. The pa the pastures they they've just used all the available moisture. Like we do soak everything into the ground, but it's just that's just the nature of a perennial forage in our environment. We're moisture limited by going to the total grazing and and doing like a once-over type grazing once in the growing season, we are limiting our moisture weather risk dramatically because it's almost guaranteed that sometime throughout that summer we're going to have some kind of a significant rainfall. Like the rain doesn't seem to be coming, although like I said, this year we've been really fortunate. We haven't had any monsoon rains. They've been like an inch every so often that we just needed. Most years it's like we'll get five inches or we'll get three inches and it might not rain anything for two months or, or in, in between so by having all the pastures with that long recovery it's like 
guaranteeing that they're going to have some sort of significant precipitation event that's going to lead to some rapid regrowth. So we've really been able to increase our carrying capacity for that reason because we're growing a lot of grass. And the other thing is like the diversity and the life it it is exploding, I think. It's you got to be patient because it it takes a bit. But once you reach like 11 months or you know, say so we'll say we graze a pasture yesterday. In the springtime it, it'll be it's growing okay, like decent. But if you can hold off to like that to give it 11 months or 12 or even you get out 13 months so it's had more than a growing season it's like it hits a point where it just blows up and that's really what sold me on on the whole system it's the the drought proofing the risk management of that and then it is in my mind it's the most effective way to manage for landscape benefit in our local environment and you were saying so you've noticed like a diversity of plants or a new diversity of plants i guess since you started doing this totally yeah like when we're out in so that's the challenge with these the the old holistic boys would always say if you manage for what you want and like i want the old i have this image in my mind of the old native prairie that was here 200 years ago like they, they say this warm season grasses were tall enough that you could tie them around the saddle of the horse like they were the horse would get lost in the in the prairie so I figure we need that long recovery period and hopefully those native plants will have opportunity to, to reestablish. So uh, if you get in there and start digging underneath the plants that are growing in our pastures, there's all kinds of little seedlings that are starting to grow. By grazing intensively, we're giving every every plant an equal opportunity to, to regrow and the new seedlings opportunity to grow in those spaces in between the existing plants. So... Yeah, the diversity's exploded. Like the wildlife loves it. In my mind, it, you can look at some of the local conservation uh, pieces of land that people have say left in their will to the local to the conservation to whoever it might be. I'm not gonna not say any names, but <laughs> and it's a wildlife or conservation place. Yeah. So there's no grazing, you can, no farming. It's just let wild and. Well, hunting season's a big deal. People like to hunt deer in this part of the world. It's not prime hunting on that conservation piece. It's prime hunting on our farm where there's varying degrees of of lush grass and like there's like the land benefits tremendously from that impact, from that energy, from that reinoculation of life from the manure and 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 microbes that are falling the cattle are falling out the back of the cattle. So yeah, it's it's neat to see. No, that's like one of the questions I wanted to ask is just sort of how your grazing system mimics those grazing systems from 200 or 300 years ago when we had a ton of bison out here. I realize you weren't around during that time, but <laughs> well, if, if you were to guess. <laughs> well, and I guess that is, that. sure, that's exactly what we're trying to do is like a, a big herd of cattle it used to be bison or whatever type of ruminant, and they were kept in tighter bunches at times by the predators. Although reading fred provenza's nourishment book like it seems to in the way he describes it there's maybe evidence that they did split up into oh. smaller family groups for the grazing season so i don't know what it looked like 200 years ago and i haven't studied history or read the recordings enough but in my mind that's what we were trying to set up is how i envisioned what it might have been these animals moving around graze something spread their manure and then move on and 
obviously the cattle or the bison wouldn't stay here for the winter and our cattle do and and to me that's the biggest challenge we face is how to deal with them in the winter and provide provide for them in the winter time because we do get some serious winter here with snow and cold i also asked ryan if he had noticed a difference in the eating experience since he switched to total grazing we should qualify like the the animals like when we're when they're in the fattening stage they are uh like we're not leaning on them that heavy. Like we're not, we wouldn't be moving cattle f- that we are going to butcher four times a day. Like okay. so, right now they're still consuming. So, so the cattle that we're fattening are on the result of the total grazing. So they're on some of our best pastures. They're on the previous year's total grazed pasture to add fat because those are the most lush and diverse and highest quality. So, yeah, I, we've definitely noticed improvements in quality of meat in that fact that they they're eating that stuff that makes them fatter i think also as we've been selecting the animals that thrive under that total grazing system those are the animals that that are the most easily easy fleshing ability able to fatten quicker so that obviously is what we want in our grass finishing program as well so I'd say our meat is getting better every year just because of that genetic selection and, and our skill level at grazing is getting better as well. Okay. Have you like personally noticed like the eating experience? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like I've been eating our own grass fed beef for, well, since university, since I wrote that, <laughs> had to do that project for the one course I was in, I've been convinced of the health benefits of that since for you know for 20 years and yeah i'll be the first to admit it was hit and miss uh, the early years and that's why we took so long to take the leap of faith to get into the direct marketing to sell it because it was like like i'm a perfectionist i i want to make sure every animal that we sell is a quality eating experience and i think we're there now um but yeah it's been a it's been a work in progress Low-stress livestock management is something Ryan takes pretty seriously. You, if you're really tuned into the cow herd, when you go out there, like, they might have lots of grass, but they, they're they still just not settled the way they should be. Like there's something missing. And in some cases, that's just, they need, they're looking for salt. Because we are controlling their movement to, to a large extent, limiting their ability to go free range, like... When the bison were roaming the prairie, they had a salt lick or a hole in the ground where the the dirt had some minerals that they needed. So they knew that and they could they could go there when they wanted to get their minerals. So that sometimes is, is part of it. Noticing those slight things and trying to figure out what that is and correcting that. Anything else with the program? As far as low stress, like you, you got to, like, like I alluded to before, winter is a real thing mm. here on the prairies. Like... You, we really like the calves, especially like the cows. They can handle a lot more environment, like cold and and that sort of thing, than than you might think. Like they they are, we've selected them to have heavy, thick hair coats, and so they they can handle it in the field. But those little calves, we can't expect them to go out and hustle in the digging through a foot or two of snow to graze. They so we do keep them closer to the yard and and feed them accordingly to make sure they they're happy and healthy during those those tougher winter months. Part of low stress livestock management is making sure you've got the right cattle genetics for total grazing or grass finished beef. That's a big deal for for this operation. We haven't bought a bull for I don't know several years now. 
I've bought a few, a handful of uh, like yearling bulls or calves that, because uh, I thought we were getting, we needed just some terminal sires to put in after our main breeding season to, to make like cattle that we're going to sell, bit more suited for the traditional market. But the cow herd and like our grass finishing animals are all coming from genetics that we have kind of let nature decide who is going to be the best suited for this environment. Mm -hmm. So where our, our genetics are coming from, we have a short breeding season. We have done for a long time, so 45 days breeding season. So that our main selection pressure is fertility. So we want the cows that breed up in the first cycle that are fertile. So, and that indicates that they're adapted to this system, that they can make use of the forage better than any any other animals or more so than the other animals. And then the bulls we're using, so the bulls we're using are out of these cows that calved up in the first cycle. Cows that are phenotypically good, like they're structurally sound. And then we'll put in like a, so it's yearling bulls that we're doing most of the breeding with. So, so we'll put out like way more yearling bulls than what a normal producer might think you need. And then with that multi-sire breeding, so the most fertile, most masculine, um, most aggressive breeder of the males breeds more cows. And then we turn those over every year. So we'll keep, we'll, we'll sell those yearling bulls um, and only keep like the, the best of those ones to to make it into their develop into a two-year-old and then we'll if they're really good as a two-year-old we might use them again and then the or and then we sell them like we're trying to sell bulls as breeding stock so what's happening is it's basically letting the 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 best of the best breed with each other and then rapid turnover means we're making more rapid genetic selection and then further to the actual genetic selection is the epigenetic factor like i think that we grossly underestimate the impact that has on on our cattle like if if we when we used to buy our bulls in it was a terrible fallout rate like they just they weren't adapted to our system they couldn't hack it they didn't get the cows bred it wasn't wasn't a good thing to do and cows are no different when we first started building the cow herd we were just buying auction mark cows like cheap cows we were trying to do this as low cost as possible and trying to go that route so you'd buy cows that you thought were the right kind like the 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 good depth of rib like the, they appeared to be easy fleshing you put them into this like a total grazing type system and they don't like it they like they don't breed back they they are not staying in good good flesh but then you'll find after a year or two they they do adapt so it takes them a couple of years to adapt and certainly their offspring the cattle that are born on this farm are always healthier better adapted for that and i think that's a lot of that is epigenetics like when they're in utero they're learning like they're getting signals from the the compounds in the grass affecting their which genes are switched on and off and and that plays a huge role and there's so much diversity within each breed i think so specific breeds i haven't like gone crazy like okay i need this uh special breed that I, i've I've scoured the planet to find and use we've so it's a predominantly black angus cow herd i figure well that there's we we picked kind of bloodlines that i thought were the right type they were small frame easy fleshing and they were more line bred than than what you might normally see in the in the mainstream purebred breeders that we have locally mm. so we tried to use that 
to start with and then we've been just keeping our own own animals for several years and that I, you'd have a hard time switching me for that. Regenerative agriculture is something that's not meant to be prescriptive. Instead, regenerative agriculture is guided by a number of principles. Most regenerative agriculture practitioners are familiar with the six principles that make up the foundation for decision-making in Regen Ag. In stories of regeneration, we're going to look at 10 principles of regenerative agriculture. We've touched on a couple of them already, like maintaining biodiversity, which Ryan contributes to through his total grazing. We've also talked about understanding the context of your farm or ranch, a principle that a lot of producers say is the principle in regenerative agriculture. There's another principle which encourages the integration of animals and ensuring their well-being. It recognizes that animals, so including livestock, have an important role to play in a healthy ecosystem. When grazing animals are bunched together and move frequently, they stimulate plant growth and fertilize the soil. Proper grazing management allows pastures to recover between grazing events, improves the quality of the pasture, reduces parasite pressure, and results in longer grazing seasons. So a lot of that sounds like what Ryan's doing with his total grazing system. But animal welfare, as I mentioned earlier, is a part of this as well. By keeping livestock out on the land, doing this whenever possible, animals can express their innate behaviors as they interact with the natural environment. This requires careful timing, adapted infrastructure, and the selection of breeds and genetics that will fit the environment. The result is a symbiotic relationship between the land and the animals. So okay, at this point you're probably thinking regenerative agriculture sounding pretty dreamy, almost too dreamy. If Regen and Egg is so great, why are only a minority of agriculture producers in Canada using the principles and practices? I I have given that question a lot of thought myself because that's kept me up at night. Like, it's like, why isn't everybody doing this? But then again, it's, a, you know, and I don't want to sound like a greedy capitalist, but it's financial incentive. And currently the system, the status quo or like more like the, the locally here, for example. So like wheat production, canola production, that's what dominates. And that's because the economics work. That's because fertilizer works. That's because the herbicides and uh, everything, the system, if applied correctly, and I say that with air quotes, it, it works. It's, it's, we're incented to produce high volume of low-cost food, and we're getting very good at that and getting better every year. But it doesn't take into account the externalities, the external costs to the environment, to our health, like the nutritional quality of the food. So... I think that's one angle is like how do we connect those dots and give the financial incentive to the regenerative producer and that's where it comes to the getting closer to the consumer in a direct-to-consumer type value chain. But it's also knowledge too. As I said, like we, I swallowed this. It, well, it wasn't called regenerative egg when, when we started. It was I started thinking it was I'm just going to build organic matter and, and – then it was soil health, and then it, now it's regenerative. And just in case you're wondering, yes, that is a cricket in the background. It's not in your house or in your car. So in, in theory, it sounds so perfect and, and beautiful. And, but in practice, it it's just adds a whole another huge layers of complexity that is hard to, hard to manage. 
and everybody's own context is just a little bit different and so trying to get that knowledge and figure that out on every farm is a little different it's it's hard to get the experience and put it all together so we there's a knowledge gap i think uh that is a big thing but we're we're making big progress in that like there's there's conferences now there's there's field tours uh there's lots of things going and i find like the the regenerative type farmers are very willing to share their experiences and so we have to learn from each other but at the end of the day oil is a very hard thing to compete with the energy density in oil compared to the labor requirements that like running a a very diversified enterprise stack farm requires is sometimes the well it is the path of least resistance is the status quo mm. so that's that's kind of where we're at and then the, the other thing on the prairies is we export most of what we do like the bulk of our stuff like the grains and that like i'm gonna say the wrong percentage but like 80 percent probably or more of our what we produce on the canadian prairies is exported internationally so how do you connect the, the international consumer back with what we're doing locally is a very tough thing and then you you think about like how much waste is in the system like we're we're not like feeding the world we can produce way more food than we need and and i think we're barely scratching the surface like when you look at a regenerative farm that has stacked all the enterprises like say are growing uh like are, you got the grazing system you've got the, your chickens you've got the pork you've got you know you're, you're using your compost from the cattle to grow vegetables and all that like the amount of calories per acre that is potentially produced is phenomenal it's exponentially higher than what we're currently producing when we're growing just like a, a monocrop crop of wheat for example so it's a it's a logistical thing too like how how do we get the people back on the land or, or the food production closer to the people and yeah i don't know it's it's a huge question i don't have the answer in it but i feel like what we're doing here right now today is moving the needle and i and more of that will help but at the end of the day it's economically economics will have to drive it i think economics are driving things in a let's just call it a non-regenerative direction right now why then is ryan farming regeneratively why am i doing this uh, some days i don't know i know <laughs> no i ask myself that lot and we're doing this because i love living on the on the farm in this rural community i really appreciate every opportunity that's ever been given to me growing up on the farm we really want to raise our kids here and give them all those similar opportunities to to, to experience the rural lifestyle, the, the ability to run out the front door and go and chase a squirrel or, or wander in the bush, build a fort or, you know, have a bonfire every night or whatever. Just, I think it's a very healthy way to raise a family. So that, that's what drives me. And I guess everything, and, and then, so we, we farming is the best way to do that, we feel. Like to have that flexibility, like to merge work and, and family life, it, there's a fine line sometimes, but it's it's a it's an awesome thing to be able to do that. And then given that it's a multi generational farm, and I guess even even not even that, is just the fact that I value the, the environment, the soil, the landscape to me is something like as a farmer 
I take a very high responsibility in the fact that when I'm done here, I want it to be better than when we started. Uh, whoever farms this land or when whatever happens when I leave, I, I hope and intend to leave it in a better state than, than we found it. So that's kind of why, why we do what we do. Usually end an episode on a high note like that one. Or, you know, with some sort of final thoughts from me. But Ryan gives Regeneration Canada and the Stories of Regeneration Project a pretty big shout out at the very end of the interview. He, uh, he pretty much brought the entire room to tears. The only thing I would say is that it's like, I do really appreciate like what Regeneration Canada is trying to do, trying to bridge the gap between the consumer and the farmer. Because that was something I realized when I went on my Nuffield travels, I was very insular. I had, I do not pay enough uh, respect to what's going on everywhere else in the world. I was naive in a lot of ways and am, I'd fully admit, I'm still very naive to a lot of things. And so trying to bridge that gap with what is going on in the city and my better understanding of what's happening there and vice versa. So I think that that is, it's a very cool thing that uh, this whole initiative is trying to achieve. So I'm thankful for that. Awesome. Well, thanks for saying that. Cool. Hey, I'm sorry we went overboard there. Yeah, but, uh, no, that was awesome. I crushed it. It was great. It's going to be a really good episode. Okay. Good deal. It's an amazing episode. <laughs> and we're just getting started. Thanks for tuning in to part one of Stories of Regeneration. Be sure to download and listen to part two with two absolute legends when it comes to applying regenerative principles and cropping systems, the Axtons of Minton, Saskatchewan. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and participant-driven projects like the Six Tipi Agriculture Project and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Cheyenne Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelley Seed, Lance Tailfeathers, Susan Solway, and Aiden Grind. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders and funders based in other parts of Canada. The Stories of Regeneration Project is primarily funded by Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada. The project is led by Regeneration Canada, a fantastic not-for-profit organization that advocates for soil health to mitigate climate change and guarantee a healthy food system. It's an organization that Rural Roots is proud to partner with. For additional information, videos, blog posts, and digital materials about the agriculture producers featured in this series, visit regenerationcanada.org. And a big shout out to Antonia, Sarah, Ali, and Paige from the Regeneration Canada team, and Jean-Marc, Obed, and Phil from the film crew, who all worked tirelessly to bring this project to life. The interview with Ryan Boyd was recorded on Treaty 2 lands and in the homeland of the Métis. My parts of the episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in the world. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. Thank you.